singing. Let's open our Bibles this evening to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number in uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. The Word of God says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. I want you to look at verse 14 and 15 once again. The Word of God says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your Word. I pray, Lord, that you'd stir hearts. I pray that you'd draw us nigh unto you. Lord, I pray that you'd convict us if there's areas of our life that have gone astray from your leading. And, Father, that as we leave this place, we'll be able to say it's been good to be in the house, Lord, and to meet with you. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in what the Word of God says that the Holy Ghost does in verse, (coughs) excuse me, number 15. The Bible says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Now, the Holy Ghost has a lot of functions in the world that we live in today. Certainly, He seals the believer under the day of redemption. Certainly, He convinces the world of ungodliness, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. Certainly, the Holy Ghost convicts believe, or convicts sinners and shows them uh, the reality of their lost condition. One of the things that the Holy Ghost does, and we might say one of His primary functions, is He serves as a witness in this world of the things of God. You'll find three different occasions that the Word of God speaks distinctly about the witness of the Holy Ghost. And I want to preach tonight on the threefold witness of the Holy Ghost. The first one we find in Hebrews chapter 10 tonight, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, He witnesses to us. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? What does God mean by that? Well, if a person witnesses to somebody, doesn't have anything to do with how that person receives it necessarily, doesn't have anything to do with what they think about it, but if you're bearing witness to a fact, then you are dealing in just that facts and you are relating and testifying and witnessing of truth to someone. We need to be reminded of this as we go out soul winning, winning people and trying to win people to Christ. You're not going to win everybody to Christ. You'll win somebody if you keep it up, amen, but you're not going to win everybody, but that doesn't mean if you've not won somebody that you've been a failure because you have witnessed to them of the reality of the gospel. Well, the Bible says in Hebrews 10 that the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, He witnesses to us, and this deals with facts. Now, once you notice three things that He witnesses to us concerning. Verse 14, you notice in verse 15, the Bible says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Now, if it says whereof He is a witness, then And obviously, it has just been stated what he is witnessing. And in verse 14, we have three facts that the Holy Spirit witnesses to us concerning. The Bible says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, let me say, number one, that he witnesses to this world of uh, the fact of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By one offering. Now, of course, how does the Holy Ghost do this, we must ask? Well, the primary way that the Spirit of God does this is through the Word of God. The Bible says that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. 
Do you know that there are a lot of reasons God gave His Word and there are a lot of great truths in the Word of God, but the primary reason God has spoken to man is to tell man that He has sent His Son as a sacrifice in man's place. If you take Calvary out of the Bible, the Bible, though it may be a beautiful story, though it may have a lot of academic truth, if you take Calvary from its pages, then it is powerless to touch and to change men's lives. The Holy Ghost speaks concerning the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And certainly Scripture is not wanting for passages that speak on the fact that Jesus not only was made a sacrifice, but He was made a sacrifice, one and one alone, by one offering. It tells us something about the sacrifice, but it tells us something about the sufficiency of that sacrifice, by one offering. And if you look at the overall theme of Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see that uh, one of the things the writer points to is that the high priest would go in every single year. Verse number 11, he says this, Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Jesus' one sacrifice of himself was sufficient to get the job done. Then I see not only that he witnesses to us concerning the sacrifice, but I see that he witnesses to us concerning the sanctification of the believer. The Bible says he hath perfected them. Now, of course, we might say this, that when we use the term perfected, we've got to be cautious because there's a ditch on either side of the road, and if we're not careful, we'll wind up in one or the other. Now, sometimes the word perfect in the Bible speaks of moral perfection. Uh, Just like when the Bible says that he was without spot, he was sinless, that he had perfect blood, that he had perfect righteousness, that speaks of moral or spiritual perfection. But sometimes when the Bible speaks of perfection, it means perfection in the sense of completion, meaning something that is whole, something that is complete, something that is finished. Almost like you might say that if you were doing one of those big 5,000-piece puzzles, that until you got the last piece in, it's not perfect. Once you got the last piece in, it has been perfected, it has been completed and finished. And you know, oftentimes, as we rightly divide the word of truth, we always lean towards understanding perfect and the term perfect in the idea of something being complete. I think part of the reason we do that is to combat against bad doctrine that would claim a person can be sinlessly perfect on this side of the grave. And we don't want to give the impression that we can ever attain to sinless sanctification through the energies of our own flesh on this side of glory. But I don't believe in this passage it's just talking about completed. And the reason is because what he says in a moment, he says he's perfected forever them that are sanctified. The term sanctification means to be cleansed and set apart for a distinct purpose. The Bible teaches that as a positional doctrine, you and I have been washed in Christ Jesus. You who are sometimes wicked and evil and iniquitous, we've been washed in Christ Jesus. We've been made clean. The Bible says, Christ said to His disciples, said you've been made clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. We have been set apart and reckoned righteous in the eyes of God, positionally speaking. Now, i got to say this. If God didn't tell us that, we wouldn't know it just by looking at each other. The Holy Ghost has to witness to this fact because just to look at believers, you wouldn't know that on the face of it. 
you've heard this phrase before. I'm sure you've heard the fellow that talked about to dwell above with saints in love. Oh, that would be glory. But then the other fellow finished last half of it. He said, yeah, but to dwell below with the saints I know, that's a different story. Amen. The fact is, if we were looking at each other to witness through our lives to the idea of sanctification, the idea that we have been made perfectly righteous in the eyes of God, we'd be wanting for a witness. Because if you looked at my life, you wouldn't find sinless perfection. If I looked at your life, you wouldn't, I wouldn't see sinless perfection. But the Holy Ghost testifies to the fact that we have been made righteous, we have been washed, we have been set apart, we have been called a peculiar and holy people, and uh, we have been called righteous in the eyes of God. We have, as Paul said, attained unto the righteousness of Christ. And we only know this because God Himself tells us this through the holy inspired Word of God. He has perfected us. He has made us to be sanctified, though not practically yet. He has made us to be sanctified positionally. God views us and judicially treats us in that manner through the salvation of Christ. But then I see a third thing here worth mentioning. He, we see that the Spirit of God witnesses to us, meaning He's testifying to a fact. Witnesses to us concerning the sacrifice of Christ and the sanctification that comes with salvation. But he also witnesses to us concerning the security that we have in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, He's perfected forever them that are sanctified. Let me tell you something. I know there's verses that people like to point to to claim that a person can lose their salvation. But if you believe that the same God wrote every line in that Bible, and I do, I believe He wrote every word. I believe every jot and tittle of the law. He wrote, He breathed, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. It's exactly what He'd have it to be. If you're going to believe that, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're going to believe that a person can lose their salvation, there's a lot more verses that you have to get rid of to make what you believe make sense than there are that you can be proud of. There are verses you can take out of context and try to make them seem as though a person can lose their salvation. Let me say this, even in the book of Hebrews is quite a few of them that talks about pressing on, that talks about uh, holding fast, that talks about sticking in, as it were. But here's the problem. For every verse that you can point to, you still have to figure out what you're going to do with Hebrews 10:14, Because the Bible says He's perfected forever. I don't know what forever means to you, but I know what forever means to me. Forever means without end, amen. It means that there will never come a time where we'll be unperfected. He has perfected us forever. And I, I say this from time to time, but let me just say it again, because I think it ought to be said every now and then. People struggle with assurance of their salvation. And I understand that. I dealt with that when I was a teenager a young child and a teenager. But you understand that if you're born again by the grace of God, you have assurance. You may not have faith in God's assurance that He's given you, but you have the assurance of God that you'll never be cast out, that you'll never be brought under condemnation, that you'll never be plucked out of His hand, that you'll never be cast aside, that you'll never be thrown away. You have the assurance of God concerning the security of your salvation. And the Word of God witnesses to us and testifies to us over and over and over again of this fact. We find that the Spirit of God witnesses to us in Hebrews chapter 10. Now turn over with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, very familiar passage of Scripture. Romans chapter number 8. And we find a different kind of witnessing that the Spirit of God does. And I think when we talk about the witness of the Holy Spirit, 
This is the witness, whether we have it rightly defined and understood or not. This is the witness that we often are talking about. See, that first witness don't have to do with anything you feel, with anything you sense. Listen, if everybody in the world rejected Jesus, that first witness would still be a reality. That's the Holy Ghost bearing witness to facts. He's telling us that Jesus has died. He's telling us that Jesus will perfect and sanctify those that believe on Him. And He's telling us that He'll do both uh, do that forever. That's a fact. But when we talk about the witness of the Holy Spirit, often we're talking about something that we believe ought to be going on inside of us. And I'll tell you something. There's a lot of uh, vagueness and a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding about the witness of the Holy Spirit. And while I have no problem with people speaking in the language they know, amen, nothing wrong with that. I, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not too uptown for somebody to testify about feeling something inside, amen. Nothing wrong with that. We must be cautious that we don't ascribe things and qualities and characteristics to gospel salvation that God himself doesn't ascribe. I've heard people say things like this, well, if you're saved, you'll feel like you're saved. Well, let me tell you something, there's been days I've woke up, I didn't feel saved. Didn't make me less saved. Didn't make me unsaved. People say things like this. Well, uh, if, if you're saved, then you just won't do this or won't do that. Listen, you've got to be careful. You walk the halls of Scripture and you'll find murderers. You'll find liars. You'll find uh, all t- adulterers. You'll find all types of wickedness of people that knew God. I think we have to be cautious in what we say. But I believe where God speaks, we can speak. And in Romans chapter 8, God speaks about it. Look with me at verse number 8. The Bible says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Let's pause right there. And let's think about what Paul just said. Now, when we talk about being in the flesh, oftentimes we mean getting out of sorts and getting angry. And we mean letting our flesh take over in our behavior and actions. And certainly I think that's an appropriate usage of the term. But it's obvious here that that's not what Paul's talking about. Because he defines what he means. He says, ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, we know that the Spirit of God takes up residence in a person's heart and life when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of promise. Therefore, when he says in the flesh here, he means an unsaved person. And when he says indwelt by the Spirit of God, if you have the Spirit of God that dwells in you, and if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you are a saved individual. So the differentiating marker that he gives for the life of the believer is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, he gets uh, here in verse number uh, 15, he's going to explain what that means. But can I just pause and say a word about that? That's not to suggest that if a person does not obey the leading of the Spirit of God, that they lose their salvation. In fact, I found this to be true, that you can be led without following. Right? A person can be leading you, but you not be following. 
we were in the corn maze on Friday night. And we had, we busted the kids up into, into groups with adults with them and stuff. And I, I had the, the group that I was with, there was a, a few of us and, uh, the, my, my little boy, he was leading the way. He had no clue where he was going, but he had a flashlight, a glow stick, and a map, and he was ready. And he was leading the way. And we wound up, oh, we start, you know, if you ever look at those corn maze, like part of it's red, like on the map. Like this is the red course, and then there'll be a blue course, and there's a black course, and just different. And we wound up in every course. Amen? And that's not supposed to happen. If that happens, you've gone through something that wasn't a path. It wasn't intended to be. But as we would go along in that corn maze, I would find that occasionally some of the kids would start to lag behind. And sometimes we'd even come up to a fork in the road, and we'd go one way, and the kids would go the other way. Now, was they still being led? Yes, they were still being led. But they weren't doing a very good job of following. I don't believe what Paul's saying here is that if you go astray, you are not a son of God. I believe what he's saying here is that in the life of every believer, the Spirit of God is present to lead them and to guide them. And that they emulate Christ by surrendering to the leading of the Spirit of God. That's how they become like Jesus. That's how they become, uh, in, in practice, a son of God. But notice how he explains this in verse 15. He says this. Now, let's back up, read verse 14 once more, and then verse 15. He says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then he says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Here we have the Holy Ghost witnessing with us. And it correlates to feeling or to passion, or to sense. This is the kind of witness that we all like to talk about when we'll say, boy, I just felt something. Or we'll say, I just felt God well up in me. And and listen, nothing wrong with saying that, but we need to be careful in, in how much stock we put in that as we talk to a lost sinner or someone struggling with their salvation. Because here's the reality. Don't everybody feel what you feel, and don't everybody worship like you worship, and don't everybody say it like you say it. And we have to be cautious in what we say. But I see in this passage two things that the Spirit of God witnesses with us concerning. Notice the first one in verse 15. The Bible says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Let me say number one. If a person is saved by the grace of God, then there will be discomfort in sin. Discomfort in sin. Now, I didn't say that sin would be impossible because that would be false. All through the Word of God, you'll find people sinning and doing the wrong thing. But when a person is saved by the grace of God, they cannot abide in a life of sin without it bothering them. You say, preacher, why is that? Because when we got saved, we got delivered from that spirit of bondage. And we're not satisfied to live in sin anymore. You know why? Because now that spirit of bondage is to fear. When we were lost, it wasn't to fear. Uh, listen, I'll be honest with you, a lost person, we get awful upset at lost people being lost people. We'll look at this lost and dying world and we'll say, why is society the way it is? Well, because most people are lost. That's why society is the way it is. 
They're doing what they naturally would do. It's no more strange for society to give in to all this, this transgender nonsense and all the sodomy and homosexuality and all the despising of parents and uh, unthankfulness and all the things God said would happen in the last days. Uh, listen, it's no more unnatural for the, the world to hate Bible Christianity and to assault the rights of Bible-believing Christians. It's no more unnatural for them to do that than it is for the pig to wallow in the slop. It's not unnatural for them. We get upset about that. But here's the truth. There's no fear in them. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And when they live in sin, it doesn't bother them. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. But remember, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We have been born again, and therefore, when we live in sin, it will bother us. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always... Come running back to the Lord right away doesn't mean that we won't entrench ourselves in sin and iniquity, but it means this, we're going to be miserable in sin. And the fact is, you may keep it up for a little while, you may convince yourself for a little while, but sooner or later the light of the Holy Ghost will break through in your hardened heart and will show you that it does not fulfill you and that you're not truly happy. There'll be discomfort in sin if a person is born again. And we're reminded of this. Listen, I had a lot of, I don't know if you'd call it discomfort in sin, but I'd sure call it discomfort in my seat when I was growing up and I decided I was going to disobey mom and daddy. And, uh, you know, sometimes they lead uh, gently along. Amen. And sometimes I wouldn't let them lead gently along. But they'd lead one way or the other. The Bible teaches that uh, if we be without chastisement, Hebrews chapter 12, whereof we are all partakers. If you be without chastisement, then are ye bastards and not sons, meaning you're illegitimate. You're illegitimate. You don't belong to God if you be without chastisement. The Bible says, Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth everyone that receiveth him. Every person that's born again will be uncomfortable in sin, and we will be chased and trailed by God as long as we live in sin. Then I see a second thing in this passage. We see what we've not received. We've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We can't live in sin and be happy. But then notice the second thing. We have received something. The Bible says, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. There is discomfort in sin. But let me say number two, there is a desire for God in the heart of every born-again believer. Now, that desire may be something that's put on the back burner, dismissed, neglected, certainly taken for granted and treated illy as pearls before swine. But every born-again believer will have, if they're away from God, an emptiness in their heart and life that cannot be satisfied by anything but God. We'll have a desire for it. It's interesting, the language here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time to go through the whole idea of what adoption meant in, in, uh, in Roman society and the idea of full sonship and becoming a uh, full legitimate child and son, an adult son. But I do want to notice what the Bible says when it uses the term Abba Father. This term Abba, it was a term of familial intimacy. In other words, it's almost like the, the name that a child would instinctively cry out to their father with. It is a name that does not imply intelligence. It implies intimacy. In other words, uh, usually we might liken it to that first name that a child learns whenever they're just a little bit. I remember whenever, when I was uh, growing up, it, 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 when, when I was growing up, I don't remember that far back. Somebody say amen. When little man was growing up, he called me Dada. 
Dada. And it, I don't know how you'd spell it. I guess D-A-D-A. It wasn't said the right way, right? It should be said daddy. But I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. You know why? Because he was just trying to find a way to get my attention. He just longed for my countenance and my presence. It is a, a name that's given that lacks necessarily intelligence but has intimacy and passion and desire. It's something on the rudimentary level that the heart cries out to know God and to know Him in a deeper way. And then the term Father. By the way, you know the Lord Jesus, He used this exact combination when He was in Gethsemane. He said in Mark, uh, I believe, chapter number 14, verse 36, He says to His Father, He says, Abba, Father. The term Father is an intelligent word. It denotes an understanding of the relationship. And it's to say this, that when a person that's saved gets out in the world and gets out in sin, they know where they ought to be and they know why they ought to be there. They know there's something missing and they know what's missing. They know that their walk with God is in disrepair and they know that there's something empty inside of them. Listen, here's what bothers me is not when folks get out and go to pieces. What bothers me is when they get out and never skip a beat. That's what scares me. It don't scare me when people get out and become miserable. It scares me when people get out and are just fine. That's what terrifies me. Because when a person, when a born-again believer walks away from God, walks off into sin, they should be. By every accordance of Scripture, the Holy Ghost should witness with their spirit and they should be miserable in their sin and they should feel an emptiness, something missing, a longing, a hollowness to their life. By the same token, those of us that uh, are walking close to God, and I'm not claiming that I necessarily am some example of it, but I'm saying if we're walking with God, then we ought to have a joy in righteousness and we ought to have a dread of getting out of communion with Him. I see the Spirit of God witnesses with us in Romans chapter 8. And this denotes the idea of feelings. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. I'll give you one more and we'll be done tonight. 1 John chapter 5 is confessedly one of the most difficult scriptures in all the Word of God to rightly divide. Uh, there are good people that argue with each other time and again. In fact, I was preparing for this message and... I, uh, I started to, you know, look at that where it talks about that water and the blood. And uh, I started to think, you know, what a, there, there's a lot of different ideas. Some people believe it's, it's baptism water of the believer. Some people believe it's the baptism water of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people believe it's the Spirit of God. Some people believe it's the uh, Word of God. And there's a myriad of different opinions about it. I'll be honest with you. I don't think anybody has it settled enough to be dogmatic about it. That's just the truth. That's my opinion. But it's funny because I was looking through it. And then I remember a couple years ago, I preached through 1 John on a Wednesday night. And I thought, well, I must have had an opinion about it back then. Somebody say amen to that. So I, I got looking through the records. And the way I was leaning when I was listening to it was not the way I was preaching when I was preaching it two years ago. Amen? And uh, it just goes to show you that as we grow in the Word of God, sometimes with certain passages, what we think about it may begin to shift and may begin to differ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing about the water and the blood tonight, but I want you to notice this third witness that we have. Verse number 5, the Bible says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. 
And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness, notice this, in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, I'll tell you the reason that I have began to have a little bit different perspective on this passage, because I began to see that what John is speaking about here is not personal witness, it is public witness. In other words, he's speaking to a group of believers that are being bombarded by Gnostic doctrine that claims that Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh, die in the flesh, or resurrect in the flesh. And he's speaking about the eyewitness testimony and the first-hand experiential testimony that him and the other disciples had to the physical incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says about the Lord Jesus that he came not just by uh, water, but by water and blood. Now, you can believe what you want about this, uh, but I am leaning and tending to believe that that's speaking about the public baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and about the cross of Calvary saying that both of these bear witness to the reality of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. You say, what about the Spirit? Well, don't forget that the Spirit of God uh, descended upon Him in the likeness of a dove when He was baptized. And it's by the power of the Spirit of God that He performed His miracles. We say, preacher, how do you know that? Because the Bible says it wasn't until after that had happened that He performed His first miracle. In John chapter 2, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. That was immediately after He had been baptized in the river Jordan and the Holy Ghost had descended ended upon him in the likeness of a dove. Now when the Bible talks about the water and the blood, uh, somebody might say, well, preacher, that's the word and the cross. And I understand why we could believe that. I, I would remind you that water in the word of God, when it, when it speaks of that which we consume, it speaks of the Holy Ghost. When it speaks of a washing quality or a cleansing quality, it speaks of the word of God. And neither of these are at the forefront. It's not talking about uh, the uh, about sustaining and, and us drinking it, and it's not talking about us being washed in it. It's talking about it witnessing to something. And in the New Testament, when the Bible speaks of water as being a witness to something, it speaks of baptism. Is that fair enough? And so in this passage, I want you to notice... Two things. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. We have no trouble understanding who that is, and these three are one. Then the Bible says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. I want you to notice first off the presence of the Spirit in this ensemble of witnesses. Now again, if we understand the water is referencing our public profession of Christ in baptism, if we're talking about a public witness, we might say this, that there is a threefold reality that witnesses to the world of the anointing and messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ, his divinity, his authority, his vindicated office. One is when a person gets saved and they get baptized, they make a public profession before the world in publicly identifying with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then when the Bible speaks about the blood, we might say that we're speaking about a free conscience concerning our past. Has it ever dawned on you that, listen, there's folks in church that, you, uh, that, that carnally, humanly speaking, with things that we've done in our past, we ought to never darken a doorstep in church. But we know we've been forgiven. We know we've been washed. We know we've been changed. We know we've been redeemed. But then I find a third witness here. And I think regardless of what you think about the water and the blood, I think we can't help but acknowledge that the Spirit, if that witness is in us, as verse 10 says, that the Spirit must be referencing the power, the life-changing power of the Spirit of God in our lives. The reason it says He witnesses in us because He's in us witnessing to a lost and dying world. Has it ever dawned on you that the greatest evidence the world has that God is real is Spirit-led believers? The Bible says that Jesus called on this witness in John chapter number 3 when He was talking to Nicodemus. And He said, listen, a person is born again, they're led not of natural things, but they're led by the Spirit of God because they're heavenly. And he said, the uh, Spirit of God, it's like the wind. It bloweth where it listeth, and you can't tell whence it comes from, whither it goeth. But you can see that something's moving. Amen? And in the same way, you and I as believers, the Spirit of God is present in our life, not just to minister to us, but to minister as a witness to the lost and dying world around us. Not just by the clothes we wear, the Bible we carry, or the place we go on Sundays, but by the virtue of our behavior being led by something markedly and distinctly different from this world's agenda and behavior. And then I see the power of this witness. Not just the presence, but I see the power of it. The Bible says in verse number 9, I like this, says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He hath testified of His Son. In other words, when we testify, that's our witness. It is. When we stand up, as we did this morning, I'm glad we did. I think we ought to. Hey, listen, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. And we give a testimony. That's powerful. But there's nothing more powerful than the witness of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer amongst a lost and dying world. The witness of men is good. But the witness of God is greater. I understand we're making a little bit of an application with these verses, but I wanted you to go home with something to chew on. Because here's the question. Can people tell you're a child of God by how you're led? Can they tell there's something different about you? Not because you say you go to church, not because you say that you're a Christian, but because they see it in the way you live and behave. I listen, I've heard testimony after testimony at times of people saying, well, you know, I was out in public and somebody walked up to me and just asked, you know, are you a Christian? Somebody said it here lately. So if, if it was you, I ain't picking on you because I can't even remember who it was. Somebody say amen to that. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's a blessing when that happens. But can I suggest to you this, that there's an even more powerful testimony than that. Even more than somebody walking up and saying, I don't know why, but I believe you're a Christian would be somebody walking up and saying, I believe you're a Christian, now let me tell you why. Because I've seen by the way you've lived and interacted. Now I understand not everybody we come into contact with is going to know us personally. That's the reason I believe in things like gospel tracts, like personal confrontational one-on-one soul winning, because not everybody's going to be able to watch your life. But I do believe this for the people that do watch our lives. There is no greater testimony than to see us being led by God. Not to hear us talk about it. And it's good to talk about it. We ought not be ashamed. 
But not just to hear us talk about it, but to see us living and behaving. I wonder what would happen if we were struck deaf and mute today and the only way we could speak to a lost and dying world was through our actions. Would we still be able to point men to the reality of God? Now, I'm not talking about somehow supernaturally by osmosis imparting the gospel, but I'm saying if a person just looked at your life, could they see God in it? Not just by the things you say, but by what you do, your actions, how you treat other people, how you interact with people, how you spend your time, how you spend your money. See, the fact is, it ain't all just about the Spirit of God witnessing with you. He does that, but it ain't all just about feeling something. A lot of it's about showing something to a lost and dying world. The Spirit of God. Listen, it's important. I'm glad He witnessed to me. I'm glad He testified that Jesus was enough and that I believed on Christ and was saved. And I'm glad that He witnesses with me, that when I'm astray, He convicts me, that when I'm close, He comforts me, that when I'm astray, things are empty, and when I'm close, things are perfectly satisfactory. But I'm also thankful that He witnesses in me, inasmuch as I'll let Him lead me in my life to be a witness to this world around us. I wonder if we can all say that that's true. I know there's times in my life that's not true. But I pray, I want God to help me day by day to be a greater channel and conduit for the ministration and witness of the Holy Ghost to this lost and dying world. I want people to look at my life and to say, hey, listen, something's driving him other than him. Something's affect. He don't act like other people act. He don't behave. He don't treat people like other people. He doesn't act like other people do. He acts differently. I wonder why that is. And Maybe they'll come up and ask. Somebody say amen to that.